Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. I've been told by people involved in climate change work that one way to rise to the challenge is to talk about climate change a lot. Of course, I do that here and I do it at home all the time. But these past several days, it seems conversations about climate are everywhere and they're provoking a striking level of dissonance. Newfoundland, for example, where a new offshore oil project just got the stamp of approval, forcing Canada's environment minister into a tricky balancing act. We, we, we care deeply about, about resource use in, in Canada, but we also care deeply about climate change. So did it work? Or has Stephen Guilbeault lost his balance? This is yet another signal that the federal government is not serious about the climate crisis. There's one answer from Angela Carter in Newfoundland. And then there's the new federal budget. Ottawa's big tax breaks for companies investing in scrubbing emissions, including the oil and gas industry, thus helping to keep it alive. Yet even as Canada talks about a future for fossil fuels, there's this. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres just days ago. Investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. This week, we sift through the actions, the words, the money and the cost, asking what's the best path forward for cutting emissions to keep the planet from heating further. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. Two days after the UN's leader called investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure madness, Canada's federal government approved a deep-sea oil drilling project 500 kilometres east of St. John's. Bay du Nord is expected to produce at least 300 million barrels of oil over the next 30 years. This is a big one for Newfoundland and Labrador, for Canada and indeed for the world. Premier Andrew Fury said he was happy to deliver good news after the approval came down. We've worked tirelessly to make sure this critical economic driver not maybe, but will be a reality for our province. But not everyone is celebrating. It's a point of conflict, right? Because it's showing us two different views into our future. And so, yes, there are people who have interests in the oil sector who I'm sure have a great celebration, but there are many, many of us that are worried. We understand what oil, the oil sector, the expansion of the oil sector means. So this is worrisome. You know, it's a signal that we haven't really changed. My name is Angela Carter. I'm an associate professor at the Department of Political Science in the Balsillie School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo. And I'm from Newfoundland, and uh, I am here right now. We're in a really difficult economic situation here, and there are longstanding social problems in Newfoundland and Labrador. We've been developing oil for 25 years now, since 1997, and oil didn't solve those. And yet we're told again, you know, that this next project, this is going to be prosperity. What went through your mind when you actually heard Beto Nord was approved? 
my initial response was that this is yet another signal that the federal government is not serious about the climate crisis. This decision, it was made by the federal government. Obviously, there are people in the provincial government, many of them who have celebrated it and wanted it and pushed for it, lobbied hard, actually, in Ottawa for this outcome. But ultimately, it's the federal government here that is speaking. And we can't have it both ways. We, we can't make these lofty emission reduction commitments and expand oil and gas production. Those two things are, are diametrically opposed, right? Because we know in this country that it's the oil and gas sector that's the largest and the fastest growing source of emissions. That is our problem. And we can't solve that problem by continually approving new oil and gas projects or infrastructure. So I was dismayed, actually, because I, I thought that this would be an opportunity for the federal government, given that it's offshore, so the federal government has jurisdiction here, to say, you know what, on the facts, we cannot approve this project on the basic facts of the climate crisis and our climate commitments. However, what we can do is we can ensure that Newfoundland and Labrador is supported in enacting its just transition. This would have been an opportunity to enact that kind of change, and that would have been such a win economically for the province and then in terms of uh, the climate problem as well. But it was a missed opportunity. Lots to pick apart there, but I, but I just want to ask you, I mean, that you say that this is diametrically opposed. The government says it can walk and chew gum at the same time. It can do what it says it's going to do, which is cut those emissions and yet still be able to approve some projects under what it says are very strict conditions. But see, that does not at all, it, it just doesn't align with the science. And we got a very clear picture of that just this week from global scientists who told us in no uncertain terms that we have to begin a wind down of oil and gas and coal extraction, production, and consumption. Oil use has to fall by as much as 75% by the time we get to 2050. That's to have a half chance of staying within 1.5 degrees of warming. And you know, those numbers, I, th I think we kind of, we hear those numbers and we sort of tune out now. But I think it's helpful to remember that we are just above one degree of warming and we have all of this climate chaos that's right here. It's right outside my door, Laura, right? I'm, I'm on the coast. I have coastal erosion, you know, 50 feet, 80 feet out my door. So we're seeing it play out and we're only one degree or so above that global average. 1.5 degrees, we can imagine the chaos and the IPCC has documented well what that would bring for us. To have only just a half chance of staying within that 1.5 degree, oil use has got to fall dramatically. You, you raised the IPCC report that, that came out just a few days ago, the International Panel on Climate Change reports. And what, there were Canadians involved in writing that. One of them has said offshore oil is less emissions intensive than Alberta's oil sands and that Beta Nord's approval works if and only government imposes a cap on oil and industry emissions that would become stricter over time. Now, we've heard the government say it is going to impose those caps. Would that satisfy you? The Premier of Newfoundland has said this, that oil off our coast is somehow low carbon oil. And so it can offset dirtier or higher emissions fuel. In theory, that makes sense. But in practice, who is telling the folks in Alberta's tar or oil sands, that they have to wind down their production to make room 
for offshore oil production off the coast of Newfoundland. That bargain is not being struck. So this is the problem because ultimately what's happening is we're just adding more and more oil. The other thing I want to ask you about, the, the context in which this announcement is made, we can't ignore it, is the war going on in Ukraine. And the approval for the project comes at a time when the world is looking for alternatives to Russian oil and gas. Does that complicate the situation? Actually, I think that that is another signal that we have to think hard about the future of our sector here. Because what is happening across Europe is, yes, in the short term, countries are seeking out other supplies of oil and gas. But the real end game for those countries now is to wind down dependence on oil and gas period from Russia or elsewhere. And so that's what we have unfolding now across the European Union. And this was happening before the crisis in the Ukraine, but now, of course, it's motivated even more. And, you know, when we think about adding this Beta Nord project, this is a project that's not going to come online until 2028, which is, by the way, you know, as the IPCC is telling us, that is after when global emissions have certainly got to peak if we're going to have any chance of climate safety. So it's not until 2028. This is not going to be a solution to um, Europe's energy insecurity. And we don't even we're not even exporting to Europe. Right. Not yet. Again. <laughs> No, no. But I mean, that would be it would be difficult. Are we going to be sending tankers to Europe? I don't know. I doubt it. Um, right now, all of the oil from our offshore is um, is going to the United States. Most of that fuel, I'm told by industry experts here, is being used to fuel up the tanks in the United States of, of vehicles. And we're seeing there the aim is to reduce the need for gasoline from cars as we choose to move to electric vehicles, right? So it's electrification of transportation. So, you know, what's happening in the Ukraine is re-motivating the effort to get off of fossil fuels. I don't see that as an invitation to produce more fossil fuels. It's not a solution to the problem that we're faced with right now. But let's talk about the economic arguments for this project. People in your province who have championed it and who are celebrating this approval Talk about the real need for jobs. I'm wondering how many jobs will this create and how those jobs stack up because this industry is known to pay quite well. It is a high paying, you know, the positions in the oil sector, certainly. But the thing is, is that there's not many of them. And this is not just a problem in Newfoundland and Labrador, but it's, it's right across Canada. So before the pandemic in Newfoundland and Labrador, direct employment in the sector was about 1.4% of total employment. So yes, every job matters in Newfoundland and Labrador, especially now we have really high rates of unemployment. And as you say, these jobs are good jobs, but there's not many of them. They're just a tiny fraction of the total labor force that we have here. But we've, heard the, we've also, heard the union leaders talk about thousands and thousands of jobs. I just can't see where those numbers are coming from because that would mean that this one project is going to bring, you know, more jobs than all of the four existing projects that we currently have. There's something fishy with the math here. And what we know by looking at the data pre-pandemic, fossil fuel firms across Canada were shedding workers. And, and I mean, to tens of thousands of workers were being shed by the sector as a cost-saving measure even as oil production was increasing. 
I imagine, though, for, for people in the province who have been unemployed for a long time or who are in very low-paying jobs and who know how much Newfoundland and Labrador have struggled over the decades, this is tantalizing. This is a bird in the hand, and maybe clean tech or renewables is a far, far away from their reality. Well, I think, actually, that the reality is that if we had paid even you know, half the amount of attention to a low carbon energy sector in Newfoundland and Labrador as we had to, to boosting up the oil sector, we would be able to taste some of those jobs. And, you know, if you look at recent polling, 80% of Newfoundland and Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, they want initiatives to see training and income support for affected workers. Workers here want a chance at a low carbon energy job. And, you know, the data as we look, so Clean Energy Canada has been tracking this. What we're seeing is that Canada's clean energy sector is employing more and more people. You know, one thing, too, that I have been seeing here locally is that young people, when they're making choices about their post-secondary education, well, we have very steeply declining enrollments in petroleum-related university and college courses and training programs. Why is that? Well, that's interesting, right? Because perhaps what we're seeing is young people who know there's actually not much of a future in the petroleum sector. I, I think the writing really is on the wall here. The Premier, Andrew Fury, has talked about Beta Nord as being a transition project, one that will help fund the changes to a greener economy and help fund the just transition for younger people. So what do you think? Do you think that that can happen? Well, it would need to be created by the province. If Beta Nord is supposed to be funding the transition, well, then we need to set up that fund, just like maybe what Norway did with their sovereign wealth fund. That institution needs to be created. And then we need a just transition plan that the government works with the labor community in particular to develop to make sure that that funding can be used well. But we, haven't, we have no details about this. So my fear is that this is lip service to this idea of oil fueling the transition, but there's actually no plan in place for that to happen. You are a Newfoundlander, as you've told us. You can look out your window and, and, and see a coastline that is in danger of eroding. You've been working on climate change for many years. I'm just wondering what this decision means to you on a personal level. It's, it's very unsettling. You know, Laura, I I have an eight-year-old boy and he knows a lot about climate because he comes to all the talks and, you know, he's he's part of these discussions in the household. He hears the media work that I'm doing and, you know, I, I feel like I'm accountable to him. I'm accountable to, you know, the other kids that are in his classroom and we are not setting ourselves up here in Newfoundland and Labrador, in Canada, in globally, we're not setting ourselves up here to have a future where these little ones are safe. And we're not setting ourselves up for a future where there are going to be, you know, there's an economic stability for this generation, the next generation that's coming up either. And the, the IPCC is warning us that if the global community acts as it needs to in response to the climate crisis, there will be as many as $4 trillion in fossil fuel assets that are stranded. Okay, what does that really mean? That means places that are dependent on oil extraction, like Newfoundland and Labrador, that we are stranded. Our communities are stranded because we waited too long to transition. So 
personally, this is deeply unsettling. It makes me afraid for the future. But um, that means we have to keep doing our work, right? We have to keep doing the research. And even though it's difficult sometimes to bring forward this research in this context, and there's a lot of backlash against people who do it, especially women, we need to keep doing it because these are the facts. Angela Carter, thank you for your time and your insights. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Laura. Thanks a lot for your coverage of this issue. I just want to pick up on something that Angela Carter was talking about, and that is this idea of a just transition. It's something that Ottawa has been talking about for a long time, too, promising legislation that will help direct people toward transitioning into the new economy that they say is critical, clean tech jobs, that sort of thing. We are waiting. The government is still consulting, and we will be watching to see when that legislation finally becomes reality. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. And we're always looking to hear from you on the program. Do you have a story to tell us about how climate change has affected you? Was there a moment that changed your mind about the impact of increasing emissions? The team here and our colleagues at CBC News want to hear from you in your own words. If you've got a personal story to tell and you want to write a column for the CBC, send us a pitch, earth at cbc.ca. Let's move on to another moment of climate discord. Days ago, the federal government revealed its plan to reduce emissions. Right after that, Ottawa had to put its money where its mouth is in the budget. And a big chunk of cash went to extending the life of fossil fuel enterprises with a new tax credit. The government estimates it could cost as much as $10 billion or more over the years it will exist. And it targets projects that capture pollution at the source and other projects that promise to suck carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere. But people's views are split about whether it's the right policy move. First up is Michael Bernstein. He's the executive director of Clean Prosperity. Hello. Hi. Why does the tax credit matter? Because we are going to need carbon capture and storage, technologies that trap carbon and prevent them from going into the atmosphere, if we have any hope of reaching our climate goals and avoiding unsafe levels of warming. And in order to deploy that kind of technology, we really do need policy support to ensure that we're incentivizing businesses to invest in that technology and invest in it at a rapid pace. All right. Well, then tell me how it works. So there's really two key parts of this. Uh, The first is to prevent carbon from uh, spilling into the atmosphere from our factories. Think about cement plants, steel mills, chemical factories. There's lots of carbon going into the air today, hundreds of millions of tons, in fact, every year in Canada. And we can insert technologies into those smokestacks to capture that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases and then to bury it underground. 
The second important thing that we are going to need to do is we're going to need to pull carbon out of the atmosphere and effectively reverse the impacts of climate change because we've simply left this problem too long and we've already put too much carbon dioxide into the air. So we have to pull it out. And that this technology, a set of technologies, in fact, that are called carbon dioxide removal technologies are going to be critical to doing that. But, but why a tax credit? Why aren't these businesses doing this already? There's no money for businesses to make in putting in these technologies. Nobody is paying them for that carbon capture. So if we're going to get businesses to, in fact, invest in it, we need government policy. It might be the kind of investment tax credits. It can also be regulations or carbon pricing. But we need some push for businesses to ensure that they actually do this. Why not just regulation in and of itself? Why not just force them to do it? Well, that is an option, but of course that will drive up the cost of these products. These technologies have a price tag. And so if we impose the costs on businesses, what will typically happen is businesses will put those prices into the cost of their goods and we'll see some of those products arise. And we also could risk losing some jobs as factories might think about closing down in Canada and moving to jurisdictions that have fewer regulations. That makes it sound like the the, the average Canadian gets hit either way, right? They're either going to, it's going to come out of their, their tax dollars or it's going to come out of higher costs. Yeah, well, the, the reality is there are costs to taking these actions um, and to addressing the problem of climate change. But of course, there's much bigger costs if we do nothing. This tax credit certainly benefits many different industries. Oil and gas, you're right, is one of them, but there's cement and steel and chemicals. Um, but as it pertains to the oil and gas sector, I think we're going to need a, a comprehensive approach here to reducing emissions. The sector itself should be responsible for the vast majority of the costs of reducing its emissions. However, there are going to be areas where the federal government may want to support this industry to decarbonize so that Canadian oil can continue to operate instead of oil from, say, Russia or Venezuela or Saudi Arabia. So this is one of a mix are, of Are you policy. suggesting that we would import oil from those countries? Yeah, sure. I mean, ultimately, what we have to do is reduce demand for oil and gas, for that matter. So we need to move to zero emission vehicles. We need to replace some of the gas furnaces or many of the gas furnaces in our buildings. And we should do that. But until we do, there will be a need for some oil and gas. And so the question is whether we would get it from Canada or from some of those other jurisdictions. And we do get some of our oil and gas from those places today. Yeah, I guess this is kind of the central argument because I can hear so many others who would be saying to you that the, the point isn't to, to keep on using oil and gas. The point is to invest in renewable energies and so we don't have to be reliant on those other countries at all. I would agree with that. I would simply say that it is not an either or choice. We absolutely should be moving aggressively to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions through investing in renewables, zero emission vehicles, and many other technologies. But the reality is that we also want to prevent some of the carbon dioxide that's being emitted from our industry, including our oil and gas sector, from entering the atmosphere today. This is a, a tax credit that doesn't just apply to oil and gas, but why not simply limit it to industries like cement or steel making and projects looking to remove CO2 directly from the atmosphere? 
well, we could do that. But in my mind, the objective is to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And so if the oil and gas sector has projects that will reduce those greenhouse gas emissions and, and the government believes that those are sensible investments, I don't see why we would exclude those, especially because the oil and gas sector uh, is also investing in things like hydrogen, um, which are going to be a part of our low carbon future. Well, let's talk a little bit more about how how this would work. How would the government monitor and hold those companies accountable to actually deliver on the promises? Yeah, and that's a really important point because I do want to acknowledge that carbon capture and storage hasn't always lived up to its potential in the past. And we need to be sure that these uh, new projects really do remove emissions, carbon emissions from the atmosphere. Um, and so the details in the budget were a bit thin. Um, we don't have all the details yet, but I can tell you from talking to officials within the finance department that they are committed to actually clawing back money, which is to say to take the money that they've invested in these projects away from the companies if they don't fulfill the promises they've made. And I understand that there will be uh, regular requirements to report publicly and to enforce any deviations from the policy. Uh, another really specific point, though, that's important is what about overall emissions from the project? Is, is that being considered in the tax credit? I'm talking about how much CO2 is also operated and is also involved in operating the project itself. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. And it's something that organizations like mine are pushing the government to do. Uh, it isn't clear from today's announcement, but it certainly is critical because we need to think about the whole picture of emissions. We need to be aware of all the emissions, including those that are associated with capturing the emissions and including those that come upstream or downstream from the projects. Yeah, and when we're talking about downstream, just so everybody understands, we're talking about the actual point at where all of that energy gets burned. That's right. 80% of the emissions roughly from oil are burned when they're uh, in the gas tank of cars. So we should be thinking about all of that because the goal really is to reduce emissions. I just think this policy can help us do that, even if it means that some people may be uncomfortable with the idea that it, is, it may involve some partnerships with the oil and gas sector. You can't ignore the fact that this, this $10 billion or more is, is for one set of technologies, carbon capture and storage, whereas everything else that, that could be categorized under climate spending in this budget gets a total of $9.1 billion. Those don't seem to be on an equal footing, or am I missing something? I don't think you are. I think there is a lot more money that is going to be needed for many other technologies, whether that's wind or solar or hydrogen, electric vehicles. Um, we need more than $50 billion a year in spending to really come close to meeting our climate goals. So there's certainly more that needs to be done. And there does seem to be a lot of funding here for, uh, for carbon capture. Uh, I hope that will be matched by similar investments in other technologies, some of which have come before the budget, to be fair to the government, and more of which I hope will come after it. Does it concern you, though, that, that sort of imbalance? I guess it does concern me to some degree. I mean, I think this is a little bit like building a skyscraper. Government took some steps to build a couple floors of that skyscraper um, and that weren't there last week. So if I were to come on site, I'd say, that's fantastic. We made that progress. Um, but of course, you rightly point out there's a, you know, 30, 40, 50 more floors of the building to extend the metaphor. I just think today was, was a, a step in the right direction. Building it with carbon-free cement, I hope. 
Yes, and hopefully with carbon capture included. (laughs) Michael Bernstein, thank you. Thanks for having me. Our next guest doesn't see eye to eye with Michael Bernstein. Julia Levin views this new tax credit not as a move for climate action, but one that could prop up the longevity of the fossil fuel industry. She's the Senior Climate and Energy Program Manager at Environmental Defense. Hello. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me on your show. So you now know what the tax credit looks like. How, how does it match up with what you'd been hoping for? Well, we had obviously been calling for there not to be a tax credit for carbon capture and storage at all. And those calls weren't just coming from us. 400 of Canada's leading academics and scientists had also called on Freeland not to go forward with the tax credit, as well as 500 organizations and 30,000 Canadians. And that's because carbon capture, simply put, it's not a climate solution. Why isn't it a solution in your mind? Yeah, so the vast majority of the carbon that's being captured is actually used for more production. And that's where this technology came about. It was never meant to be a climate solution. It was about getting a cheap source of carbon for for this process called enhanced oil recovery. And that's where carbon is injected into depleted underground reservoirs to get oil that otherwise couldn't have been extracted. So for example, in Canada, um, we've spent $6 billion already, taxpayer dollars, over the last two decades on a handful of carbon capture projects. And most of those are about more oil production. And even without enhanced oil recovery, Carbon capture and storage in in the energy sector on fossil fuel projects, it only addresses a tiny fraction of emissions. At best, it can capture three to 15 percent of the of the entire life cycle emissions. That's because it does nothing about the emissions that come from using the oil and gas or nothing. And it also does nothing about the methane that is leaked when we dig up and transport the oil and gas. Let's just tease this apart a little bit. You you talked about this idea of enhanced oil recovery that has been around for a long, long time. Um, The federal government, as you say, isn't going to support that with the tax credit. Doesn't that make a difference to you? I uh, I'm happy that they have promised to keep enhanced oil recovery off the table. I'm worried about what that means in practice. Um, We can look to other jurisdictions that have done something similar. Australia subsidizes CCUS and has an exclusion for enhanced oil recovery, but it doesn't work. Um, companies submit projects, they say they're going to store the carbon underground, they get the money, and then a few years later, they start selling the carbon that they store for enhanced oil recovery projects. Isn't that a matter of oversight though? There's not much in the details of the tax credit that should give Canadians any faith that, that it will happen. Um, in the tax credit, it says they'll, they'll let proponents report on their levels. And for another example, we can look to the United States where they have a slightly different tax credit and the IRS did an investigation and they found just under 90% of the claimed tons of captured carbon were never verified. Um, so there's huge problems. These, these are systems that are so easy to game for oil and gas companies. But even if, even if there is no enhanced oil production, again, we're only dealing with the tiniest fractions of the emissions being, being generated. We're not saying that there shouldn't be CCUS. We're saying what the government should do is put in place, they promised, they promised to put in place a cap on emissions from the oil and gas sector, and then leave it up to these very rich companies to figure out how they're going to reach those emissions cap. But taxpayers, our dollars should not be on the lines to subsidize 
the most profitable sector in the country and one that's fueling the climate crisis. This is a critical issue, of course. It's that whole question of whether these companies need an incentive to do this. And Michael Bernstein of Clean Prosperity argued the tax credit rewards companies for taking a risk on a new and expensive technology. Tell me what you see as being wrong with that approach. I mean, first of all, it's not a new technology. It's one that's been around for many decades, has already received billions of dollars globally in investments and still hasn't performed at scale, still is really unproven to the point where the IPCC um, warns countries against relying on CCUS to deliver emissions reductions. But the other part of it is that we know what the solutions are that can have emissions this decade, which is what we know we have to do. And that's wind, that's solar, that's energy efficiency. These are the things that taxpayer dollars should be going towards. We don't have unlimited taxpayer dollars. We definitely need to scale up our climate financing, but we don't have unlimited dollars. So the government's approach of continuing to throw the lion's share of its spending towards oil and gas companies to slightly, incrementally reduce their emissions, but lock in decades more of emissions and not and not spend nearly the same amount of money on the proven solutions that not only work to, to tackle the climate crisis, but also will give us cheaper energy, will give us cleaner air, will give us healthier lives. There was money in the budget for those kinds of things as well, though. There was, I mean, we saw $9 billion in the emissions reduction plan over, you know, five to seven years. That, that is, you know, barely more than what we spent on fossil fuel subsidies in one year alone. So the scale, the disconnect, the, we, we've, we've counted up the public funding that goes to fossil fuels and what goes to renewable energy, and it's 14 to 1. That ratio is not okay. We need to be spending on the things we need more of, and that, again, is is wind energy, is solar. It's not fossil fuel subsidies. And that's why um, the UN Secretary General Guterres, he said that spending on fossil fuel projects is moral and economic madness. I just want to ask you, though, about another type of project that this credit supports, and those are technologies that can actually suck CO2 directly from the atmosphere. I'm wondering what you think about those projects. Um, you know, I have, I have no problem with the government investing in research and development into direct air capture um, but there are different, the government already has funding programs set up to do that. Natural Resources Canada has th- over $300 million, which they can use towards um, direct air capture or, or investigating carbon capture and storage for some sectors like cement. We also have the, the um, Net Zero and Accelerator, an $8 billion fund that can do some of that research and development. This tax credit is about uh, a giant new subsidy to oil and gas companies. It's not about those other sectors that that where we potentially you know should be doing some research. I just want to come back to this question of oversight. Um, um, we have talked about um, the government might. Or Michael Bernstein told us he believes the government might actually claw back money from projects if those companies don't fulfill the promises they've made. And I'm wondering if that is sufficient in your view. I mean, it's definitely better than having no conditions at all. But again, we've seen the track record. We've seen, you know, when when these companies, when there's spills, when there's environmental disasters, we never hold them accountable. We have to judge things based on our track record. And our track record is time and time again, letting oil and gas companies off the hook. And that's why we have a $260 billion environmental liability Canada problem in Canada. 
it's because we don't ever um, keep hold these companies to account. So yeah, it, I'm glad there are some conditions, um, but there's not a whole lot of trust that anyone should place in the system to actually be able to verify and enforce and and get and you know claw back money that's already been given to oil and gas companies. And it's not just, you don't just have to take our word, you have to look at the jurisdictions that have implemented tax credits for CCUS and see that the lack of enforcement, the lack of verification that exists in those places. Now, a rebate for electric vehicles is something that Canadians understand, right? They can directly access that. This policy, though, to support carbon capture is one that they won't see directly, and yet their tax dollars are paying for that. I'm wondering if you could explain to me why it's relevant to people in Canada. I mean, the reason it's relevant is, a, is that it's an example of how our government continues to put the interests of um, oil and gas CEOs over the interests of regular Canadians. You know, the kinds of things that we need to be doing are investment tax credits for renewable energy to put solar on, on our homes. We do have some money for retrofits, but to increase people's uh, access to money for retrofits, um, to electrify public transit so that wherever you live, you have access to good quality electrified transit systems. And that's one of the, you know, the, the hypocrisies. We have the CCUS tax credit, but the tax credit that was promised to us during the election for renewable energy, what they put in the budget is a commitment to maybe in a year bringing in a renewable energy tax credit of up to 30%. So a fraction of the 50 to 60% that, that the CCUS tax credit will, will give to companies. That's certainly something for us to keep an eye on. Julie Levin, thank you so much for talking to me about it today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And that's it for us. Now, if you missed the episode we did last January on carbon capture and storage, I'd recommend you have a listen. It's a good 101 on a controversial technology that's being pointed to as a climate solution. This week's episode was produced by Molly Siegel and Kristen Nelson, who is the newest member of our team. Our team also includes associate producer Rachel Sanders and engineer Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. And farewell this week to associate producer Serena Renner, who is off to new journalistic adventures. Good luck, Serena. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.